Chapter 12, Freedom's Close. Like other runaway slaves, Harriet Tubman was no longer safe in Philadelphia. Because of the Fugitive Slave Act, she was liable to be arrested at any moment, even though she was living in a free state. It was now doubly dangerous for her to return to slave territory. Yet in the spring of 1851, she went back to Dorchester County. She brought away one of her brothers and two other men and got them safely to Philadelphia. That summer, she worked in in Camp May, New Jersey, in a hotel. She saved practically all of her earnings, living like a miser, miser, hoarding each penny. She planned to go back to Maryland and fall in the fall, and she would need money to finance the trip. This was to be a special trip with only one purpose behind it, to persuade John Tubman to go north with her. It had been two years since she had seen him. During that time, she had not only for, forgiven him for his threat to betray her, but she had begun to remember all the things about him that had made her fall in love with him. His easy laughter, his sense of humor, his tall, broad-shouldered build of him. And so one night, in the fall of 1851, she arrived at the plantation again. She lingered in the woods on the edge of the fields, impatiently anticipating the moment when she would see John face to face. The big house was mellow with light, and in a sense, so were the cabins in the quarter for the flickering light from the fireplaces showed through the doorways, soft, yellowish. She was wearing a man's suit, a man's felt hat on her head, and felt perfectly safe, confident. She knew that the master, Dr. Thompson, would not expect her to return to the plantation from which she had just once managed to escape. Besides, she had been back here before. Her knowledge of the route was so sure that she could go north rapidly now, knowing all the stops along the way, where it was safe to spend the night, which houses would provide a war- and which houses would provide a warm welcome. With this knowledge, she could easily refute all of John's arguments about the dangers involved for those who ran away. Late that night, she went toward the cabin where she had lived with John Tubman, knocked and knocked softly. She heard the murmur of voices. Then John appeared at the door. At first, she saw only his face, the familiar beloved face that she had for weeks now longed to see again. She had forgotten how tall he was, how broad his shoulders. She held out her hands, smiling at him. He simply stared at her. She remembered the man's suit, the old felt hat, and she said, chuckling, It's Harriet. For the first time, she noticed he was not alone in the cabin. A woman got up from a stool near the fireplace and came and stood beside him. She was young, slender, infinitely more attractive than Harriet. Harriet tried to explain why she had come back, but the words did not come easily. She felt like an outsider, a stranger. She was terribly aware of the man's suit, the burrs clinging into it, the material old and worn and snagged by briars, the man's shoes on her feet, the battered old hat. These two people standing there, side by side, silhouetted in the doorway, light from the fireplace behind them, seemed to belong in the cabin. Something in their posture suggested that she did not, that she was an intruder. She spoke of the North and how they could live there together and possibly have children. There was a yearning tenderness in her voice. She said, I came back for you, John. Me, he said, and put his arm around the young woman. This is Caroline, he said. Caroline is my wife now. I'm I'm not going to the North or anywhere else. I wouldn't leave here for nothing in the world. Then he laughed. Harriet had wanted to hear him laugh again, hear that happy, carefree laughter of his, but not this way. She hated the sound of it. It was mocking laughter, and the woman standing there beside him was laughing too. She lifted her head proudly. 
she would never let either of them know that a world had collapsed for her, a dream had been destroyed. John, she said, oh, John, pleading, desperate, how wrong she had been to make, the, make plans for him. Why had she assumed that he would be willing to go north with her when he had refused before? She had forgotten that, that she had always been imbued with the idea of freedom, magic in every sound of the word, and he had always been indifferent to it, perhaps because he possessed it himself. She thought with something like contempt that he should be a slave. He deserves to be one. She compared him with John Bowley, her brother-in-law, who was willing to risk his own life and safety, though he was a free man, in order that his wife and children should not be slaves. She remembered how she had dreamed of living in Philadelphia with John Tubman. She wanted to plead with him. Then she knew a moment of anger and wanted to shout at them because she felt they had cheated her out of her dream, defrauded her. She hated this young woman who was now leaning against John, the look of puzzlement now replaced by disdain. She thought if only she had been wearing fine clothes, silk or satin instead of this torn shabby suit, not silk or velvet, just a simple calico dress, a dress that would have immediately revealed that she was a woman. Then she shook her head. How could she sleep in the, on the ground in a dress, climb in and out of a potato hole in long skirts? Besides, clothing did not change the person, did not really matter. Love and devotion should not depend on the kind of clothes you want more. A man's suit or a woman's dress should not have made one whit of difference. Neither the one nor the other could alter or change the kind of person she was. Her mind, her soul, would always wear freedom's clothes. John's never would. And yet, I came back for you, John, she said again. John and the woman laughed. Harriet stood there for a moment, wanting to cry. She thought of the long way she had come, the money she had earned doing the housework that she hated, remembered how for months she had condemned him in her mind as worthless, and how that judgment had been softened by time until she had remembered only the good in him, re-experiencing in, in retrospect the moments of warmth, of understanding, the remembering of how, how she had made the colorful quilt, dreaming about him like any young engaged girl. When she made the quilt, she was transformed. The field hand felling trees, cutting half a cord of wood a day, lifting barrels of flour, pulling loaded boats along the river, edge of the river like a horse, had been turned into a girl in love, melting with tenderness. Even now she found it impossible to hate him. She was too much in love with him. But there was an emptiness, vast, unfillable inside her. It would stay with her forever. Suddenly she remembered his previous threat. It wasn't safe to stay here. He might betray her. He had always said that he would. She turned away, taking with her the memory of John Tubman and the young woman Caroline, who had replaced her in his life. By midnight, she had collected a small group of slaves, all of whom wanted to be free, and started north with them, heading for Philadelphia. The Reverend Theodore Parker, who when a boy bought a Latin dictionary with the first money he ever earned, was chairman of the executive committee of the Boston Vigilance Committee. On November 21, 1850, he wrote a letter to Millard Fillmore, who was, the, who was the then president of the United States. In the letter, he not only expressed his own conviction that the fugitive slave law was wrong, but he eloquently expressed the refusal of the abolitionists to obey the law. I am not a man who, who loves violence. I respect the sacredness of human life. But this I say solemnly, that I will do in my power 
to recuse any fugitive slave from the hands of any officer who attempts to retain him to bondage. I will do it as readily as I would lift a man out of the water or pluck him from the teeth of a wolf or snatch him from the hands of a murderer. What is a, what is a fine of a thousand dollars and goaling for six months to the, libra, to the liberty of man? Money perish with me if it stand between me and the eternal law of God.'"